uh, we are here this morning. You know, we have drawn together in the name of the Lord. You know, we are his church, his body. And so his gifts are functioning here among us. And even as we read in Revelation on Wednesday night, Jesus is the high priest who is among the lampstands. And he is here. He is uh, present among us today. And I, we actually had a, a conversation. Uh, is Jesus literally here or is it by his Holy Spirit that he's here? Because it says that Jesus has ascended and he's seated on the right hand of the Father. And you know, does that mean that it's not really Jesus who's with us, but it's actually the Holy Spirit? And it's like, you know, that's kind of an interesting question. But, you know, when you take that to its extremities, you come out with that gentleman, Sergio, remember that, we t- that I talked to you guys about that we met at the baptism that one Sunday, where he said that, oh, you know, you know Paul's a liar, and, you know, we can't trust, you know, all of the writings of Paul, which is three-quarters of the New Testament, because we know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so when Paul said that Jesus came and, you know, ministered to him and shared with him, you know, the revelation of the gospel, that's a lie. It can't be. And, you know, when we, we started having this conversation uh, a couple days ago, and, you know, we kind of talked about that. It's like, well, you know what? I think that's an over-literal thing where it's like, you know what? That concept says that Jesus is literally strapped down and is like a prisoner to his father's throne, and he cannot stand, he cannot move. But, you know, what we see when uh, Stephen was martyred, and he said he looked up and he saw the Son of Man standing. And it's like, oh, okay, there you go. So it's not quite so literal. You know, Jesus doesn't have to be seated on the throne, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and all of that. And, you know, and with the Apostle Paul, and obviously all of us declare that the writings of Paul are scripture, and even the other apostles declared uh, that that was so. And so I find it very comforting that the very truth that we speak to our children when they have nightmares, when they're scared, when they're nervous in the middle of the night, and we say, you know, pray because Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. You know, I have doctrinally absolutely zero problem with that whatsoever. And I can say right now, Jesus is with us. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Well, uh, this morning we are going to be carrying on in Genesis chapter 28, and we're going to be uh, covering verses 6 through 9. And it's funny because when I originally started looking at this, you, I've always looked at this before, and it's just like this section right here has always been just a segue into a greater section of Scripture, which is verses 10 through the end of the chapter, where Jacob is going to meet the Lord personally, and he's going to be at Bethel, the house of God. And I've always just kind of like looked at that. Yeah, just read past it. And it's like, oh, you know, Esau marries Mahalah. Okay, well, that's great. You know, it's like Esau, he's not really, you know, part of much of the, of the blessings. You know, he kind of he fades out where Jacob and his family line continue to grow, you know, with the promises of the Lord and the blessings of the Lord. And yet, as I started really looking at this verse, the Lord kind of captured my attention and wouldn't let me get past uh, verse 9. And I, I love it. I love teaching the word because as I've been you know, teaching the book of Genesis, I've been just so blessed so dumbfounded with all the things that the Lord has been just revealing to me in my personal walk, and I pray that he's doing the same with you guys. But I don't know what your, uh, the little caption above uh, verse 6 says for you guys. For me, it says, Esau marries Mahalath. And I think that is just a, it's an event that happens within these verses, but that's not really what's going on here. What's really going on here is found in the very first two words. The very first two words of this paragraph says Esau saw and if I was going to name uh, this uh, 
message, which I don't usually do, but if I was going to name this message, I think I'd put that Esau saw, or Esau, whatever. Anyway, why don't you join with me as we read through uh, verses 6 through 9, and we'll just jump right in. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebosh, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Father, we just pray now, Lord, that you would just by your spirit, Lord, charge these words. Help them to sink deep into our hearts. Let your word as a seed drive deep into good soil that it may grow and bear fruit. Lord, give us ears to hear. For we come in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an important, an important thing. Esau saw. And that word for saw, is an, it's an interesting Greek word. It's ra'ah. So if you guys ever wanted to like try to like throw out some Hebrew to somebody, you say ra'ah, to see. And what it means is to see outside of oneself, to learn, to know, to experience, to perceive. That is what this word means. And you think as Esau is sitting here, and it says that Esau saw. And you're like, wow, so Esau learned something. He looked outside of himself. He looked and saw something. He learned something. He knew something. He experienced it and perceived it. But what was it? Well, the context of this is if you'll actually just look back to Genesis 27, verse 41, here's the context of where Esau is when he had this revelation. The revelation is that, verse 41, so Esau hated Jacob because the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Esau is sitting here and he is stewing. And, you know, we all saw the blessing that Jacob had stolen, that, you know, he put the, the hairy stuff on him and the shirt and everything. He brought, you know, a, a couple kids that were supposed to be like venison that Rebecca had prepared for him to, to deceive his father. And, it, you know, inside the tent, in, shrouded in darkness and lies and deceit, Jacob took something that was freely given by the Lord. And so he reached out his hand and he took it. And then Esau comes and he finds out, he figures out very quickly what Jacob had done. And so here Esau is now. Here Esau is, and he's holding the mother of all grudges. Now, anybody here ever held a grudge? <laughs> yeah, a few of us. And those of you who didn't raise your hand, we'll talk later. He was holding the mother of all grudges. You know, he's sitting there, and when you guys have been, like, really angry at somebody, I know when I've been really angry at someone, it kind of has effects on my life. And I, that, that anger and that frustration, it begins to overshadow everything else, doesn't it? Because that pure, unadulterated rage, that passion of anger, it just dwells up. And every time that you think upon it, it just flushes up and your face goes red, your cheeks get all, your cheeks get all pink, and you, know, you feel it as though it just happened, huh? It feels as though the wrong has just happened to you right now. Every time, it may be a year ago, it may have been 10 years ago, it may have been 20 years ago. 
And yet, when you hold a grudge, when you hold on to it, every time that you go back to it, it's as though it just happened, isn't it? That's the way we feel. That's the nature of anger and the way it works. And anger is opposed to what uh, psychologists and uh, psychiatrists said years ago. They had that whole anger therapy. You guys remember that one where uh, those of you who are old enough to like, hear such things in the 80s, you know, where they would take baseball bats, like wiffle bats, and they would, like, they'd say, okay, the psychologist would put you know, a pillow on a chair and say, okay, that's your husband. Now take out all your anger on your husband. And it's the whack, whack, whack. And like, I can't believe you said that. And, and, and they would sit there and they would do this. And then the, the, the psychologist would say, do you feel better? Yeah. You know, because when you get angry and you beat something, you know, your adrenaline kicks in. You, start, you get a rush and it feels good. It's like, yes. You know, I do feel better. That feels great. And for years, this was a prescribed therapy. And they thought that this thing was great. They thought, oh, wow, people feel so much better. But then as time progressed, the findings started coming in that anger isn't like, a, like a, um, a pressure cooker where it's like built up inside and then you psh, release the steam and then it's gone. It's not like that at all. But in fact, anger is like a muscle. And the more you exercise that muscle, the stronger it gets. The more you exercise and dwell on your anger and unforgiveness, the stronger and more pure and concentrated it will become. Make no doubt of that. And those of you who have walked in that, have walked with holding a grudge with somebody, unwilling to forgive them, you know it's true already. My words bear witness to your own soul, don't they? And this is where we find Esau. Esau was in a place, he, he basically, he, he wouldn't let go. And this anger for what Jacob did, this anger for the blessing that Isaac gave him, it began to overshadow everything else in his life. And you know, even, you know, even his love for his father began to be clipped by this. It began to be overshadowed. And the love for his father, who he did love, they had a great relationship, right? So much so that Isaac was even willing to go against the will of God, the revealed will of God, to bless his son Esau above his son Jacob, even though God had said not to. So there is a camaraderie between Isaac and Esau. And yet even still, this anger began to overshadow the love that Esau held for his father. How so? You say, you know, Pastor Brian, I don't see that here. This is a pretty, you know, small set of verses. There's not a lot there. But just think of this. Is Jacob Isaac's son? Yes or no? Yes, he is. Does Jacob love, or sorry, does Isaac love Jacob, his son? Absolutely. Esau is now comforting himself He's, trying to, he's licking his wounds, and he's putting the salve of one day, the salve of revenge. One day, I am going to kill my brother Jacob. But because I love my dad, he says, I'm not going to do it now because now is the time of mourning. Well, what is that? Isaac's not dead. In fact, Isaac's not going to die for like another 20 years at least because Jacob's going to get back from Laban before Isaac dies. And yet, what does this mean? Well, there are no doctors, there are no anything like that, so they're all sitting around, Isaac's getting old, his eyes are starting to, to, to dim, and he's getting more and more frail, and he's like, you know what, you know, one bad cold and I could be done for. He says, I don't know how long I've got, and so, you know, it, it was like a season, it was a season of where, hey, you know what, I, I could die at any moment, I have no idea. 
You know, that, that one man who told Jesus, let me go bury my father. Let me go bury our dead. He goes, and then, and then I will come and follow you. And Jesus said, no. He said, let the dead bury their own dead. He says, but you follow me. And you think, wow, that's kind of harsh. You know, his dad's at a, like his dad died and he's going to bury. No, 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 no. It just means his dad's old. His dad could last another 20 years. His dad could last who knows how long. And it, but it was a custom. It's like, okay, this is a time of mourning. My father is drawing near to the time where he will be gathered to his people. And that is what is going on here with uh, Isaac. He is in that season where it's like, okay, I could die at any time. I don't know when. And Esau is nursing his wounds by saying, now is the time of mourning. But as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to murder my brother. You think, wow, is that Isaac's will? Is that the will of Esau's father? That he take revenge upon his brother and murder him? Of course not. And yet, when we hold a grudge, when we walk in unforgiveness, when we live with that, all other common sense goes away. And all we can do is comfort ourselves with the retribution and vengeance. And not only that, but now can you imagine? It's obvious because, you know, Rachel found, I'm sorry, Rebecca found out about this. That means, what is Esau doing? He's sitting there muttering to himself. He's talking to people. I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. It's not like he's just thinking this in his own head. He's, ex- he's saying this to people. He said, because, you know, they have lots of servants. There's a lot of people around. And so, you know, he's saying this out loud. He goes, yeah, my, my dad, you know, he's dying. But as soon as he's dead, Jacob's a dead man. And you think that would start uh, making the family a little bit uneasy? How, do you th- how, how would that be, coming down and sitting down at the table, the dinner table, you've got the falafel going, you've got the venison going, and, and everybody's sitting around the table, and Esau is staring daggers at Jacob. Does that make light conversation? No. So there he is. He is now making himself a prisoner of his own anger. Right? He is isolating himself because, it, I don't know if you guys have ever hung around somebody who is like completely embittered. Have you, done, have you ever hung out with people? You can hang out for a little while, and you can come alongside them even, and even uh, bear their burden for a little while. You know, like bear the burdens of the weak and you know, bear the brother, you know, help your brothers out. Weep with those who weep and cry with those who cry. But when somebody is completely consumed with anger and bitterness of soul, it begins to drain you, doesn't it? It begins to suck the life out of you. And it's like every moment you say, hey, how you doing? Like maybe you just had a great day and you want to share a praise report of what the Lord has done in your life. And you say, hey, how's everything going? And they're like, terrible. Everything's horrible. I wish I was dead. And you go like, oh. How was your day? Okay. You know, where you want to jump up and down and say, yeah, it was awesome. The Lord did this incredible work. And yet because of just that gloom and that poison, it's like it feels wrong to be able to say that, huh? And so... The, so when somebody is nursing a grudge, when they're holding on to unforgiveness, when they're, just, they're trapped in it, they're literally making a prison for themselves. It's a, it's a cage that they have wrought. It is chains that they have forged in their own life. You guys uh, know, you know the Christmas carol, Ebenezer Scrooge. Remember Marley and Marley, you know, they, they, they came. You know, Jacob Marley came. Sorry, I was thinking of the Muppets one. That's Marley and Marley. The regular one is just Jacob Marley. That was it. <laughs> I've got kids. Come on, I've got four daughters. So anyway, sometimes those lines get crossed. But, you know, Jacob Marley came, and, you know, he, he, remember he untied the thing, and his jaw, like, dropped way down like that. It's just like a, a ghastly, you know, scary thing for Scrooge. And Scrooge is like, oh. And then Gr- Scrooge notices. He says, what is this chain about you? 
and Jacob Marley has this chain that's huge chain that's just wrapped around and there's you know big weights and chests and stuff like that attached to it and he said this is the chain that I forged in my own life it shackles me everywhere I go I must carry it and wield it and yet you know we don't really have a chain like that in the afterlife there's a place called uh, Hades and then after that the lake of fire and that's chain enough but in this life, actually, we do have a chain. We do have a chain that we carry and we forge every link of it. And it is that of unforgiveness. It is the chain of unforgiveness. And it is a chain. And it does shackle us. And it binds us. And it keeps us from being able to go forward. It's an imprisonment. And nobody can release us from it but ourselves. And though it is hard because our flesh doesn't like to let go of it, does it? And Esau didn't either. Esau didn't, but you know what? We're commanded to. We're commanded to forgive. Turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 17. Verse 3. Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother, that's fitting, isn't it? If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent. Now, the lotus is, it's not a suggestion, but a command. You shall forgive him. You're like, whoa. Okay, now let's just say uh, the last time that somebody offended you. Let's imagine now, hey, you know, they come and they offend you and they say, whatever, and maybe they, they blast you, maybe they're a family member, maybe they're something, and they say something that just like cuts you right to the quick, cuts you right to the heart and the soul. And, you know, you get all angry, you're flustered, and you, and you, you have some choice words, but you refrain, and then, you know, they, they realize what they did, you rebuke them saying, hey, you shouldn't have said that, and they say they're sorry, and you say, I forgive you. And then 20 minutes later, they do the same thing again. And then 20 minutes later, they do the same thing again. And then 20 minutes later, they do the same thing again. And then 20 minutes later, you get the point. Do you see the, the extremes that Jesus is talking here about forgiveness? He says, if your brother comes to you seven times in the same day with the same sin, you're to forgive him. And then he follows it up with uh, this verse. Listen to this, verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, <laughs> increase our faith. Can you imagine trying to forgive somebody seven times the same day for the same sin? And, and not just like in words, not just, oh, oh, I forgive you. I'm a good Christian, so I must forgive you. Thou art forgiven. Go your way in peace. Not that, but true forgiveness. Like Psalm 103, verse 11 and 12 declares, as far as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, that's how many times... Yeah, that's how big, that's how great your forgiveness is to be. You're to take that sin, that debt that they have against you, and you throw it into the sea never to dig it out again. Right? That's the kind of forgiveness he's talking about. And when the apostles see this, they're just like, what? How are we supposed to do that? And they say, Lord, increase our, we need more faith to be able to do that. And what I find so interesting is Jesus' response. To, and this is the response to their declaration, we need more faith to be more forgiving. And so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, well, we all know that a mustard seed is very small. He says, if you have this much faith, just that much. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant, now this is where you kind of go, what? But listen, 
Follow me now. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, who are you? You're the servant. He said, so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, notice that, commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Forgiveness is not an option. Forgiveness is not, oh, if I feel like it, if I want to be especially magnanimous today, then and only then will I forgive my brother, my sister, my father, my mother, my stepmother. Dun, dun, dun. No. Jesus said you have been commanded to forgive. You have been commanded to forgive. And he says, you are that unprofitable servant. And you, the Lord may call you to work in a field. The Lord may call you to come and sit down at his table and serve him. Or he may do something even more humbling and make you come and sit at the table of your enemy and have you serve them. And when you are finished, you're not to expect, okay, Lord, now I'm going to get the double blessing because I died to myself. And now, like, Lord, pour out your blessing. Where is it? And the Lord says, I want you to go serve that person now too. What? We're not to do these things because, you know, oh, I'm going to get, I'm going to reap the harvest of the Lord's blessing. That's why I forgive. That's why I do these things. Even though it's against my flesh and I have to crucify myself. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, he says, you must first deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me daily. And he said, and when you do those things, when you do take up your cross, when you murder your flesh, then don't say, now I'm going to sit down at the banquet of the Lord's supper. No, 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 no. He says, then, he says, you need to just say, I am a wicked and unprofitable servant. And I shouldn't be expecting to thank you for the things that are expected of me. It is my duty. And you go like, wow, that's not very cool. But you know what? The Lord does love to bless though, doesn't he? And his blessings come just because he loves us. It has nothing to do with our works. But we should not expect greater blessing because we have done something that we are called to do as Christians in the first place. Does that make sense? We have been forgiven a great debt. Jesus you know, told the, the parable of the, the master uh, who he had two servants. One of them owed 10,000 talents. The other owed you know, just, like, just a little bit. And he forgave. And Jesus said, hey, you know, which one loves the master more? And the Pharisee said, uh, the one who has forgiven much. He goes, yeah, Absolutely. Jesus told another parable of you know, a man who owed 10,000 talents, and he had another guy who owed him like 300 denarii. And the master had compassion on the guy who owed 10,000 talents because it was an unpayable debt. And he said, hey, you know what? I forgive you. Forget it. Don't even worry about it. He says, I forgive you. I'm having compassion on you. I forgive you. And yet that man went out and he sought out his fellow servant, grabbed him by the neck and said, give me the money you owe me. And the man said, hey, I'll pay you. I'll pay you every penny. Just, just give me more time. And he says, no. And he threw him into debtor's prison. Master finds out about it, brings him back, says your debt is now back on you, and you're going to be thrown, you and your wife and your children, everybody's going to be thrown in de- into debtor's prison, and you will stay there until every last penny is paid. And you think, what? And then Jesus, at the end of it, does the clincher, and so the Father will do to you if you do not forgive from your heart. And you go like, whoa, 
What does that mean? Well, you know what? That's when you get into those, one of those uh, theological debates about once saved, always saved. Every time. You come across that one because the guy had his debt forgiven him. He goes off in peace. Eh, be, you know, be, be at peace. Be joyed, you know, Enjoy. And then the master says, your debt's back on you now, and you're gone. And you're like, Brian, come on. Now, that's just, that's just one, one incident, one parable. You can't like, base a doctrine on, par- on a, one parable. No, but I find it interesting that Jesus in the Lord's Supper... Uh, in the Lord's Prayer, I'm sorry. Also, you know, he gave a, you know, this is how you should pray, our Father who art in heaven. And then after he finishes that, there's only one section of the Lord's Prayer that the, that the Lord Jesus comments on, gives commentary upon, and that's upon the forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, de- who are indebted to us. And he said, if you don't forgive those, you are not forgiven. And you just go like, huh? Wow. And you know what, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to theologically argue once saved, always saved, because, hey, you know what, God knows. He knows the day that you enter into salvation, absolutely. And, you know, but I will say there's enough warnings in the Scripture to say, hey, you know what, you need to guard your salvation. You need to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to walk with him daily. We need to walk with the Lord daily. And now, you know, we cannot be... We cannot be as Esau where we sit there nursing a grudge, holding it, going over and, and like comforting ourselves. Yo, it, it's like the, um, the neosporin for our wound is the, the anger and the hatred and the, the knowledge that pretty soon I'm going to get to take vengeance out on that person. That's not what we're called to do. But we are called to forgive. It is a command. We have been given that command. And... But now in verse 6, look with me now. Esau saw. And here he is. He's trapped in his own prison. You know, he, he set himself up. He, there he is. And he's just, he's just in this. And you know, he's uh, eating some worms and kicking some rocks and doing the whole bit. And there he is. And he's just like this. And you know, he's isolated himself from his family. You know, his love for his father has been overshadowed with just the need to, to, to take vengeance on Jacob. And there he sits. And yet, even in that place... Even in that place, in just being ruled by his emotions, there he sits, and yet he saw. He had revelation. And what did he have revelation of? It says that Esau saw that Isaac blessed Jacob. And you go like, well, well we already knew that. You know, that's, when, that's the one that Jacob you know, stole. No, 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 no. There was a second blessing. Really? Mm-hmm. Look at chapter 28, verse 3. This is the second blessing now. He says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. Now, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but which blessing is greater, the one that Jacob stole or the one that Isaac now says out in the open in broad daylight? Yeah, this is a greater blessing, right? This is far superior because this is the blessing, hey, the blessing of Abraham, that you and your descendants may inherit the land. That's the promise that the Lord himself came in bodily form to Abraham and declared it to him. This is the same promise, the same blessing that the Lord himself came to Isaac and said this very thing. And now Isaac and he's had, a, he's had a little bit of time. Remember when the first blessing happened and Esau came in and Isaac figured out that it wasn't uh, Esau that he blessed? Remember it said that he trembled? Why did he tremble? Why was he afraid? You would, it's like, oops, my mistake. Sorry, son. 
No, no, no. He was trembling. Why? Because he knew that the Lord called out his sin. Because Isaac rebelled against the Lord. Isaac was not willing to heed the voice, the revealed will of the Lord. And he laid his hands upon who he thought was his older son Esau. And so he trembled when he found out what had happened. And now, and now, out in the open, no deceit, no lies, no smoke and mirrors, no costume changes, no food, no appetites driving the blessing. Now, in truth and obedience to the Lord, Isaac lays his hands upon his son Jacob and in faith prays a blessing over his son. Esau saw this. Esau perceived this. He learned something. He looked outside of himself. He looked outside of his anger, outside of his frustration, outside of this comfort to kill his brother. And he looks, and though his eyes are still clouded with the fumes of his rage, he looks and he sees his father laying hands upon his brother and just blessing him. And it's not like some cheapo blessing. Hey, yo, go in peace, you know, be fed, you know, be warm. No, 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 no. This is the blessing of Abraham. This is a greater blessing. It, Isaac stepped it up now. And Esau sees this, and he's taking note of it, and he's like, huh, wow, what do I do with that? And yet, that's not all he saw. This, this whole paragraph is about what Esau saw until the very last verse. And it says, listen to this. And it says at the second portion of verse 6, it said that uh, he saw that uh, Isaac had blessed him and gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And then down in verse 8, he says, and Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So what is this now? Esau not only saw that his father actually has love for his brother Jacob, that he has given him a greater blessing, but now he also sees his own mistakes his own shortcomings, the places where he has grieved his father, where he has become a reproach to his mother because, you know, he went out and what did he do? He, he took these women, uh, these daughters of Canaan, and, you know, he married them. And, you know, sure, you know, in the time when they had their courtship, you know, they were probably exotic and strange and fascinating and exciting and sensual. And, you know, their worship of their gods was like, yeah, because it's a party. You know, it's a rave. And so, you know, he was all consumed by that. And I, I could only imagine uh, that, you know, you know, what do I care? You know, what do I care? And it's like, you know, and so, you know, he poured into these women. He poured into this experience. And, you know, he filled himself with it. And he loved it. And now, now, as he sits there in his little prison looking upon the blessings of his father, hearing the exhortation to his brother, do not take from the daughters of Canaan. And he realizes, and the father's will has been revealed to him. And maybe he never cared about it before. Maybe he never thought about what his father cared about. You know, he always had a good relation, like, yeah, dad, they hit each other on the arms and stuff like that. Like, oh. And yet, you know, they had that relationship, and yet he never really knew. He never really understood. Can you imagine, like, when he, when he came to dinner? You know, and he's like, hey, mom, dad, check out my new ladies. And they're like, they got like the, you know, the, the neckline cut down to here to their navels. And, you know, they're like cussing up a storm and the whole bit. And, you know, and they're just like, whoa. 
yeah, yeah, this isn't, this isn't what we learned from Abraham, and this isn't what we taught you boys. You know, who are these girls you brought? And there's two of them. Ooh. <laughs> you know, double trouble. And, you know, he never really cared about that before. And yet now, in this moment, he, he's seen something. He's seen something he didn't see before. He didn't realize it, but it's like at this moment is this moment of revelation that these wives of his did not please his father. He saw the revealed heart of his father. Would be to God that we would have moments of clarity like this. Amen? And not only that, but look at verse 7. It says, and then this, he, he also saw this because it says, and that. So this is continuing on the, the progression of what he's learning, what he's seeing, what he's observing as he's looking beyond himself, as he's looking beyond his circumstance and his, motion, his emotions and his rights and his feelings, as he looks beyond it. Now he sees, listen to this, it says, also Esau saw that, um, that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother. What does he see? He sees a witness of a character, a character which he does not possess. It is a character trait, a noble character trait of obedience. And you think, wow, okay. Esau disobeyed his father's wishes. He's seen that now. He's coming to grips with that now, that these daughters uh, of Canaan, these wives that he has taken, don't please his father. He's realizing that now. And yet, you know, how often... Did he sin against them? How often did he discount what they thought, what they felt, the exhortations that they gave, the teachings of the Lord God Almighty, all of these things? You know, I mean, seriously, it's like he, he was a grief to his parents. You know, and, and Isaac, because he loved Esau, probably didn't say anything, or maybe he did. But, you know, you can be sure that, you know, guys, have you ever noticed that women's nonverbal communication screams? Have you ever noticed that? When they, they don't need to say a word, but their body language and you know, the look in their eyes and the, the well-placed, perfect timing. <sighs> Husbands, amen? Amen. The nonverbal communication screams so loud. This is something that we're teaching our daughter, Trinity, right now because she's kind of coming. She, she's, she's getting to that age where it's like, you know, the, the emotional cycles and everything like that have begun to happen and it's all happening and you know, you'll tell her something that she doesn't like and it'll be like, <sighs> I was like, excuse me? I didn't say anything. No, I know you didn't say anything, but yes, you did say something, young lady, and you're going to come here and you're going to apologize to your mother because of what you didn't say. Do you understand me? And I can guarantee you when Esau brought these ladies to their tent and had dinner with their parents, Hey, meet my girls. His mom was like, <sighs> and yet did he care? Did he give any more heedance to what his parents thought, to what his parents desired? It's like he was so thick-headed with his own desires and what he wanted that he didn't even see it. And it took this moment and this blessing for him to finally look beyond himself and learn something. He didn't get it. And here... Here, we realize that he cared about as much for the desires and the will of his parents as he did for his birthright that day when he came in from the field hungry and Jacob had his bowl of stew. He didn't care. He didn't have a heart of obedience. He didn't have that noble characteristic built into him. 
because he hadn't practiced it. It wasn't there uh, in obedience to you know, his birthright and you know, his role as the firstborn, what he was called and commanded to do. And it wasn't there uh, obeying the will of his parents. He didn't care. And so now he's looking beyond himself. He's perceiving and learning something from his brother because his brother, whether he wanted to go or not, was obedient. And you say, yeah, but Jake, Jacob, come on, it's Jacob. He's a liar. He's a usurper. You know, he's a deceiver. Come on. Yeah, but you know what? Just remember this, that even in Jacob's deceit, it was an obedience to the word and voice of his mother. Jacob was obedient to a fault. Now, usually obedience is a great thing. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 and 23, uh, Samuel is speaking to uh, King Saul. And he says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Did you hear that? Wow, to obey is better than than sacrifice. To do what you are called to do in the first place is far better than saying you're sorry and making amends. So it is with the Lord. This is what you know, we here this morning need to understand. It's not that we, when we do something wrong, we repent. King David showed a great history of that, and his repentance was sincere. It was honest, and it was true. And he, you know, but the thing that made him a, God after, or a man after God's heart wasn't the fact that he repented well, because Samuel, the scriptures are, have already declared that to obey is better than sacrifice. And yet, David's desire to be obedient to the Lord his desire to do the right thing, though, oh, wretched man that I am, his flesh nature, sometimes it outweighed you know, his desire to do what was correct. Yet in his heart of hearts, he desired to do what was pleasing to God. And Jacob, Jacob was a man who had a desire to be obedient. He wanted to be obedient to his father. He wanted to be obedient to his mother. And he had a lapse of reason, absolutely 100%. But his character was that of obedience. And Esau is seeing this now because when you're angry at somebody, it's really easy to demonize them, isn't it? When you're angry at somebody and it's just like, ooh, and you're holding on to this grudge and you won't let it go and you're stewing in your anger and the fumes are going up, clouding your eyes. And then all of a sudden it's like, maybe they do something else. And you assume now, you assign a motive to that person. It's like, oh, you know, they're doing that because they're just, they're bad. You know, they're wicked. Look how evil they are. I can't stand them. And it just fuels the anger even more. And we have that tendency of doing that. It's like, you know, we drive all of the good out of the memory of that person, don't we? Everything that is good and noble and pure, when we hold a grudge, when we are angry at somebody, we drive all of the good out and we, we leave room only for misconception. We allow ourselves to deceive ourselves in the character of that person or persons. And we allow ourselves to believe that they are out to, you know, to harm us and to do us wrong when that's not necessarily the case at all. And here in this moment, think about how profound this is. Esau saw he looked outside of himself and he understood something about his brother, that his brother was obedient. And who knows what he thought? Who knows you know, where he went with that? But he realized this. Jacob was obedient to his father and to his mother. Could he say the same of himself? 
The answer is no. No, he couldn't. Can we say of ourselves, when we are sitting in situations like that, are we able to have a moment of clarity like that where we hear from the Lord, where we look outside of ourselves and we see not only the prison that we have set ourselves up in, but also see the love that our Heavenly Father has for that person that we are angry with? Can we see the good characteristics, the good traits that they actually do possess Can we see our own mistakes? Because that's the hardest one in the world, huh? Remember Jesus talked about, hey, you know what? If if you want to pull a plank out of, uh, you know, a a little piece of dust out of somebody's eyes, he goes, first remove the plank from your own eye. And that plank, it's something of the same kind, only much greater. So if you say, hey, that person's a hypocrite, and you want to go, hey, you're a hypocrite, and like yank it out of their eyes, first, Jesus says, look into your own heart of hearts and find all the hypocrisy there. He says, because you will have enough for a lumber mill. He says, find that hypocrisy first, remove it from your own eye, and then and only then will you see clearly enough to be able to help your brother or your sister with the hypocrisy in their life. And now, Esau, of all people, Harry Esau, man's man Esau, despised his birthright, comforted himself by planning the murder of his brother Esau. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, Esau. I mean, seriously, Esau, of all people, he's seen something. He's having a revelation. And you know what? I'm ashamed to say, you know what? Esau probably has seen more in these uh, four verses Uh, than me in uh, my fits of anger when I have little uh, adult temper tantrums. Because it's hard to see clearly, isn't it? It's hard to see clearly when we're overcome by by our emotions and our grief. And yet Esau here is a great example for us. But, you know, what he saw is that is the application that we need to hold on to this morning. That is the place where we need to grasp onto. But what he does from there... We need to learn from his mistake. It says in verse uh, 9, it says, So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Now, any Bible student knows, is this a good thing? I mean, think about this. I mean, who is Esau? What is Esau the product of? Abraham and Sarah's self-will. So he is a product of self-will. He is a product of the flesh. It was their, uh, op- it was their chance, their, their, their attempt to say, hey, God has reframed us from this. He's not keeping his promises, so we're going to give God a hand with his will and his purposes. That, that Ishmael. That's who Esau... But see, you know, here's the thing. This is... The, the spirit, the mind that has rejected God doesn't think clearly. It doesn't understand. It doesn't perceive spiritual understanding. And so Esau, he sees these things. He has this revelation. He looks outside of himself and he sees all of these profound truths. And probably the biggest is his own sin. How easy is it to miss our own sin, huh? It's easy to see our sin in somebody else, but it's so difficult to see it in ourselves. And he saw all of these things. He perceived, he learned, he he experienced all of these things, and yet what does he do with it? What does he do with that knowledge? And that is an important question this morning. What do we do with the revealed will of God in those moments of clarity when God reveals to us our own nature, 
when he reveals to us, you know, maybe the nature of somebody that we don't like, when he reveals to us his love and his compassion and his grace, whom he bled for, those people that we can't stand. What do we do with that knowledge? Well, I'll tell you what Esau did. He, well, uh, he, he tried to cover up his own sin. Okay, a, a lot of people will actually say, hey, you know what? If you read the commentaries, they'll say this moment, because who would, uh, of course, who on earth would go to Ishmael? That's ridiculous. And so many commentators have actually said this is an act of spite on Esau to Isaac, his father. And, you know, I've thought about that, but, you know, I, I can't honestly say that I believe that. I can't honestly say that that conjecture is something that I would like, yes, I, I agree with that. And let me tell you why. Up to this point, who is Isaac's favorite son? Esau. They were, you know, dad and son, father and son. They loved each other. They had a great relationship with each other. Esau here, I believe, is looking to find approval and blessing from his father. The understanding now that his actions have not pleased his father are in his mind. And so what is he doing? He's seeking to cover his sin. He's seeking to find approval. He's seeking to have what? A greater blessing. In the same way that Isaac did a second blessing on Jacob, laid his hands on him in front of the entire clan, in front of the entire family, laid hands on him and gave him a greater blessing than he originally planned to give to Esau. Now Esau, with this understanding, this revelation in his own mind, is now saying, Father, bless me also. Me also, Father. Have you not left another blessing for me? And so what is he doing? He's trying to win approval and blessing from his father. And so it's like, okay, well, and again, this is what I say. This is the carnal mind, though. This isn't the spiritual man. This is the carnal man. He says, well, you know what? Uh, Ishmael, you know, he's not, he's not a, a son of Canaan. His daughters aren't daughters of Canaan. You know, and he's even related to Abraham, our grandfather. Yes, Abraham. And so you know, he, he can't see past the fact that, you know, yeah, Ishmael was kicked out of the family and his mother too because he was persecuting his Esau's father, Isaac. Yeah, like he, he couldn't see that. It wasn't clear. It's just like, oh, I, I, need, I, I need somebody else. I need something else. Quick, quick, quick. And so he jumped and he tried to cover his sin. He tried to win a blessing now. But what should he have done? He should have repented, shouldn't he? Right? He should have fallen on his knees and his face before the Lord. And he should have cried out to God, Father, forgive me. Forgive me. I have forsaken your blessing. He should have cried out to God. You know, and not only that, because you know, he, didn't, he didn't repent. You know, he, he also didn't sanctify his own family. Remember uh, Abraham? When, he, when uh, the Lord said, I'm going to meet you over here. And Abraham, he goes, oh, okay. And he makes all of his people take a shower. And, well, they didn't have showers that day, but they had a bath. You know, but anyway, he made them all you know, put on deodorant and their keturah, their, their perfume. And you know, he, he made them all take all of their idols, little earrings and things like that, little talismans. He made them take all of them, gather them together, and he buried them beneath a tamarisk tree. Because he sanctified his house. He sanctified his home. And then he went to meet the Lord. And Ishmael doesn't do that. He doesn't sanctify his home. He doesn't you know, cast out the things that maybe the idols that his two Canaanite wives brought into the tent. He didn't do that. He didn't sanctify his home like his grandfather had done. And not only that, but he didn't teach his wives the ways of the Lord. They taught him 
their practice of worship, absolutely. But he has not taught them how to be pleasing to the eyes of his father and his mother. He didn't do what he was called to do as a husband, as a son, as a follower of the Lord. He is it by, uh, by birth only. Oh, I'm a Christian because I grew up in America, and, and America is a Christian nation. That's what Esau was. He was a Hebrew, but he was not Israel, a prince of God, governed by God. And the long and short of it is this. Esau sought blessing, but he refused to remove the offense. Let me say that one more time. Esau sought the blessing of his father, but he refused to remove the offense. I know I've done this many times in my own walk, where it's like, bless me, Father, bless me. And the Lord says, well, what about this? Well, don't worry about that. Bless me, Father, bless me. Well, what about this? Don't worry about that. Father, bless me, bless me also. Esau wanted a blessing, and yet he refused to remove the offense. He saw ra'ah. He perceived. He looked outside of himself. He gained revelation, and yet he didn't act on what he saw. And the action that he did take was not the proper action. He failed. Guys, we need to seek the Lord. If any of you lack wisdom, the Apostle James said, if any of you lack wisdom... He says, ask the Lord who gives liberally. He says, but don't doubt. Don't doubt. He said, but ask and God will give. Guys, we need the wisdom to take the things that have been revealed to us and to properly apply them to our lives. He tried to hide and cover his old mistakes with a new one. He refused to change. Guys, praise the Lord. God meets us all right where we are, doesn't he? He meets us right here, right now, with all of the sin, with all of the turmoil, with all of the shortcomings, with all of the failures. And yet, by the grace of God, he refuses to leave us here. Isn't that incredible? Esau, Esau, had a moment of clarity. And you know, these, kind of, these kind of truths that he realized, that he saw, I bet they were from the Lord. Because I, I, I realize how difficult those kind of revelations are to me as a Christian with the Holy Spirit of God living within me. Can you imagine a carnal man like Esau having a moment of clarity like this? And yet, what do you do? What do you do with what you have learned, with what God has shown you? We must be people who are willing to change. Not to assume that we have it figured out. Not to assume that we have all the bases covered. We need to be willing to yield ourselves to the Spirit of God, to repent and to apply what God has said in our lives and to say, I'm an unprofitable servant. I'm an unprofitable servant and I've done what I've been commanded to do. Blessed be the name of the Lord.